And welcome to another episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Each week we bring you a live discussion, which includes your questions. And today's episode takes us into the fascinating world of photography. Our guest is Frederick Van Johnson, a professional photographer whose career includes award-winning work as a combat photojournalist and marketing positions with Yahoo, Apple, and Adobe. He's also a content creator, industry influencer, and entrepreneur, as well as the founder and CEO of TWIP, This Week in Photo, part of the TWIP network on YouTube and iTunes, where since October, he's played a prominent role with the photographer site SmugMug, which acquired TWIP. So we now have what's been characterized as the trifecta of Flickr, SmugMug, and the TWIP podcast. He presently serves as head of content with them in new media. And we remind you, Speaking of new media, that Gray Matter with Michael Krasny is a growing community podcast, welcoming new members at graymatter.show, and that's gray with an E. And now, a warm welcome to this episode's special guest, Frederick Van Johnson. Thank you. Thank you. What an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, it's an honor to have you. And uh, also want to begin, actually, by talking a little bit with you about, well, what I have to note is the major transformations that have taken place in your world of photography. You think about the internet, of course, but also digital photography and smartphones. Everybody's a photographer now and AI. And I hope we can talk about AI as well, but 3 billion photos uploaded every day. So why is it still a good career? Because you're bullish on that. You're pretty much a promoter of photography as a career. I am. Yeah. But you know what? Like, it, it changes over time. And just like, just like any other career, things evolve and technology evolves and photographers have to evolve as well. And I'm bullish on the career field of photography, though. As time moves forward, it feels like the word photographer is becoming more and more niche because mm-hmm. creators, as I think they are, are being tasked to do more and more than just take quote, just take photographs. It's more of a multimedia prospect these days, and it's getting more and more uh, saturated in that direction. So I don't think the the career of photography or photographer is going away, but it's certainly morphing into something, I think, more exciting. More exciting why? More exciting because we have, well, I mean, if you, if you rewind back into, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, the, the distribution capability that photographers had just to to get the work out was highly limited and and there were gatekeepers that would stop you from getting your work out in front of the masses. Today, of course, with the internet and social media, et cetera, those barriers have fallen. So now we have the ability to get our work out. So the onus is on the artist to create work and tell stories that wanna be seen and heard. Um, I think it's exciting because the tools that we have get better and better and better literally every week, whether it's the cameras, the software, distribution, even methods of storytelling, like Apple with their with their Vision Pro headset or Meta with their Quest. All these different ways that people are consuming content means that photographers will have to kind of skate to where the puck is going and create content to suit those mediums and those audiences, which keeps it exciting. It's just, it, it just can continually evolves into something different, which means it'll never be boring. I want to talk with you. You mentioned photography as an art, about photography as an art, but could, to be a commercial photographer, I've heard commercial photographers, uh, friends of mine, for example, complain, there's just too many images on the internet. You can't really create new images as well or as easily as you used to be able to, because they're all there for you. And AI is, if anything, probably increased that. Mm-hmm. Quantum 
increasing. Yeah, yeah, literally. There's nothing new under the sun. They say, right? Um, but the, the, that's that's true and false. There's nothing new under the sun, but there's new ideas and new people and new situations and new stories to tell every single day. So, sure, there's been a million bazillion photographs taken of, say, the Golden Gate Bridge or whatever subject that you want to photograph, but has it been photographed today in the way that you want to photograph it? Has it been photographed or created in an, in a, in an AI world or using some sort of VR technology so people can do things that was never, never possible before having these technologies? So yeah, there's, there's, I don't think there's, there are no new atoms or energy, right? If you look at the whole conservation of energy idea or, or, but, but it's, it's kind of a reimagining of the whole space. And it's kind of looking at things with a new light and refreshing and, and, and synthesizing what's happening in the world today and the zeitgeist of what the, the, the population is thinking and cares about and translating that into stories and photographs and, you know, all the other media that we, that we create for. Well, you did a whole webinar on AI, and I would recommend that. In fact, it's online now, I believe. And uh, there was a good deal of talk about, uh, well, the changes that are going to be imminent, but changes that are already taking place with photography. What do you see as the biggest changes, and where is it all going? What's the trajectory ahead, do you think? Yeah, that's, that's a really great question. The, if anyone tells you they know where all this is going, don't, don't believe them, right? That's the whole, I'll sell you the Brooklyn Bridge kind of idea. This is all brand new, which I think it is terrifying to a lot of people, a lot of photographers and content creators, uh, because the truth is AI and technologies like ChatGPT, those large language models or mid-journey that these AI image generation, text-to-image models, sure, they in some cases obliterate the need for what was once a full-time position that could do that. Now you could do it watching TV on your phone and generate text or an outline or even the bones of an, uh, a script for a, a interview or something or uh, some kind of story you want to tell. So the, the, I think the, the, the morphing of the industry is necessary right now. In fact, I think it's going to go further. Like if you ask me, I mean, you're asking me where, where are things going? If I was to take an educated guess, looking and kind of putting all the pieces together that we're dealing with, whether it's VR, AR, crypto with NFT technology in there, all the things we take all these things and put them together. What does that look like? And I feel like it's a, it is a almost a science fiction kind of world that we're moving toward where you can put on a headset and literally go have a conversation with your therapist in another country and have it feel not like you have all this hardware between you and the other person. It will feel natural. Or, of course, the entertainment industry, those are obvious uses. The healthcare industry, it goes on and on. I think once you enable these, these sorts of technologies, it becomes obvious. So I, I, was, I had a conversation with someone yesterday. We were talking about where this stuff is going. And the analogy I drew was, imagine if you could go back in time before Hollywood or to an alternate universe where there is no Hollywood and there are no network of theaters around, but there was a thirst for that kind of storytelling. And then one company said, we're going to build a network of theaters, i.e., you know, a, a place for people to deliver content, there would be an explosion of stories that needed to be told and created for 
those theaters. And that's kind of where we are now with these different ways of getting stories into others' heads. It's, it's kind of like an explosion of screens around the world where we as content creators will need to create content for. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's a matter of, oh, photography's dead. We've heard that before. We heard that 33 years ago when Photoshop launched. We heard, oh, Photoshop is the end of photography. It's all over, right? And we heard it again when digital cameras started coming into their own. Oh, it's the end of photography and real photographers shoot film. And we know where that went. So, and we're kind of at another, another reckoning, you know, real photographers don't use AI or don't augment their images with AI or they're not embracing it. And those who don't embrace this stuff right now, I don't think it's a, it's a matter of atrophy or you're going to go away, but you will certainly not, you will certainly be at a disadvantage to those that do, or at least understand these technologies. Well, there will be a kind of Luddite effect, yeah. you know, those who want to hold on to the old ways. Mm -hmm. But what you suggest is how fast and rapid things are moving, which we can't even keep up with or conceive. I yeah. mean, there was a time when people couldn't imagine, you know, flying across the Atlantic or even flying in an airplane, you know. And now, look, there were time when we watched films and there was no sound and who would have even conceived of sound? Mm -hmm. It's like that kind of a trajectory and it's really hard to get your mind around. But in that webinar you did, there was mention of Elon Musk talking about this as an arms race. Mm -hmm. There's some pretty, you know, and we did a whole podcast on this, some pretty scary sides of this too. You said science fiction, you know, yeah. people think about that. Arnold Schwarzenegger type of thing that maybe artificial intelligence is going to get ahead of this regular intelligence that we like to think, although you have to look at humankind and wonder just how intelligent is it really with all the conflict we have, yeah. difficulties we have. But there was also in that webinar a good talk um, uh, about making things more human. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm sort of skirting around this. I don't want to necessarily make this too philosophical, yeah. but... Susan Sontag wrote a bunch of essays years ago, back in the 70s, and she was one of our premier intellectuals. And she said that photography takes away humanity. It freezes images. She even uses sort of a semantic analysis where she talks about loading a camera and shooting a camera, too much like a gun. But it takes away from mediating with reality the way an artist or a painter would do. She wasn't saying, got to do away with photography. She was saying, it's not an art. Yeah. How do you respond to that kind of thinking? Oh, you're leading me, aren't you? <laughs> so I respond to that with, uh, it's interesting. So that that story has always been told, right? I don't agree with it, you know, but the, the story of this new thing is coming along and will destroy the old thing. This is a whole idea of zero sum uh, game. I don't, I don't subscribe to that. I subscribe more to the idea of art is in a constant state of growth and evolution and change, just like we are as humans. We're constantly changing and learning new things and trying new things. And there are m constant challenges that we have to solve for positive and negative. So the, the idea that, that photography is taking away or it is, you know, like a gun when you shoot some, you take a photo, you're actually shooting that you can draw all kinds of analogies about any sort of art form. But this one, I think the, yeah, the point of time where we're sitting right now, that analogy of photography abstracting reality away from the real reality, that is more appropriate to what's happening today with these, with AI and VR and AR and all of these technologies. But even then, 
why not? Right. So the the and, and that may be ignorant, that may be uh, naive. But on the other hand, what's what choice do we have? Like we st- start out in this conversation. Where is it all going? No one knows where it's all going. You could arrange the tea leaves to point towards doom and destruction, or you could arrange the tea leaves to point towards a, a utopian future. And it's your choice, right? You could choose to believe we're moving into a Mad Max uh, dystopian future modality, or you could say, okay, we're moving in towards a star, you know, towards a Star Trek. Everything is great. And we get along with aliens and we're exploring the universe because of technology type modality. The choice is yours. The truth, obviously, is somewhere in between. But I don't I don't I think it's it's doing a disservice to to the art form and to photographers to immediately dismiss these new technologies and vilify them because of what might happen. I think the smart play is to get educated and understand where they're going so you don't get left behind and then press forward smartly with them. So yeah, I, I don't. I don't see. That's this actually as a pretty good pragmatic view, and, and uh, I think Frederick Van Johnson seems to uh, take a stand on the more sanguine and optimistic uh, planting of a flag. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I keep seeing this quote: "Build a better world through the power of photography." Yes. yes. How do we do that? I mean, that's that's where you stand. That's kind of the epitome of much of your philosophy with respect to photography. How do we build a better world through the power of photography? It, it, great. I'm glad you brought that up. So the, the you mentioned during the intro, the company that acquired This Week in Photo, the podcast, uh, uh, which, by the way, was founded by two other folks, uh, and then I took it over. The the you're listed as a founder in most yeah yeah I, I would I would say I don't know how you would say that I would say I am more of a you know, I was a caretaker that then got that stuck with it. So, <laughs> but yeah, it's it, it happily stuck with it, obviously. But you know, you look at you look at the the whole phrase of building a better world through the power of photography. When this week in photo was acquired by Smug Mug, which is a photography photo sharing company here in Silicon Valley, uh, they their tagline is building a better world through the power of photography. The tagline for this week in photo is and was to entertain, inspire, and educate. So we put those two things together and you have kind of this trifecta you mentioned. The the building a better world means telling stories, essentially. There's a ton of stories that need to be told, whether regardless regardless of the medium and, and even saying through the power of photography, that might be slightly off point, right? Because it's not just photography. It is using the tools that are available to us today, one of which is the camera, to get this the message of whatever you're passionate about out to a large group of people. You may want to get that message out through writing, but you may be dyslexic or you have some other barrier that stops you from getting the ideas, these brilliant ideas in your head out into other people's brains. These technologies help reduce those barriers. So now someone that's dyslexic can get their ideas into a certain, you know, an app like ChatGPT and output what they were thinking and then change it and publish it and suddenly there their ideas out there. So all many forms of storytelling are impacted by what's happening. So writing of course in all of its flavors, video is impacted, still photography and different permutations of still photography like cinemagraphs and all that. All these things are being affected and pushed forward 
by this technology and the better world comes from the barriers to the kid somewhere in Botswana or in Australia that couldn't get his or her ideas out, now they can, which makes the world better. Can AI take over that kind of role, though? I mean, theoretically or conceivably, eclipse it, supplant it? Um, maybe. I mean, we talk about we talk about maybe, but it, I put a huge, giant, bold asterisk on that. And I say that because we... We look at humans as the bar, right? Humanity and our brains and the synapses that are firing at whatever gigahertz per second, you know, this is, this is the humanity is the final state of what things could and can be. The argument then becomes with these large language models that don't have the, I don't know, let's call it the restrictions uh, of a, a carbon-based life form that degrades over time and forgets things and has a limited capacity to learn and retain and all of these things, what if you remove those and you have these large language models where, hey, if you teach it French, it's going to know French forever. If you teach it calculus, it's going to know calculus forever. For 100 years, it's going to know it and be able to apply that situationally to what's going on. So, I don't know. I think the argument is maybe it's 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 an error to try to to compare apples to oranges, i.e. humans and humanity to these tools that are that are AI. I don't think they're they're one in the same. One helps the other. Humans will always in my mind, humans will always be what we're solving for. We're trying to make the world better for humans, for the things and for future generations. It's all about that. That's what we're that's what government's here for. That's what everything is here for. It's for the people, by the people, for the people. These AI comes in, come in as tools that can let us do those things better than ever before, better, stronger, faster than ever before, but not as a replacement. It's just a stronger tool. Kind of like I can't unscrew a bolt. I can't, I can't take a, uh, I can't take a tire off of my car to change it because I got a flat with my bare hands. I need a tool to allow me to apply more torque to that, to get that screw out, to get that job done. The tool isn't taking my job, right? It's making my job easier and letting me get on to the business of, of getting to my destination. You should look at AI like that. It's a big wrench, right? Well, that's how that we look at uh, how we've looked at the internet. The internet is a tool, and it can be used yeah. or it can be abused. It can you know, got a lot of bad actors using him and abusing the internet, and probably the it's same a double -edged will happen sword, right? with AI. It's going to happen. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, absolutely. Getting some questions for you, Frederick. Yeah. Uh, let's start with one, and uh, th these are people who are clearly familiar with your work. I think by the nature of the questions, Juan in Mexico City says. In the history of photography, which picture do you wish you had taken and why? Oh, great, great question. My roots in the, the United States Air Force are in photojournalism. So at, at my sort of core DNA level, I would call myself, you know, or I aspirationally call myself a photojournalist, right? So to that end, um, God, yeah, you put me on the spot. The photo, I think it was by James Nochway. Uh, and it was the the photo in Tiananmen Square of the the person the guy standing in front of the tank in front of the tank. Yeah, that photo. Whenever someone asks me that particular question, that photo is the one that that pops into mind because it illustrates the power of photography to change minds with a single click. 
right? And now that was obviously taken way back in the day on film, right? So a single frame of film was able to change lives, save lives, change the entire course of history from a single frame of film. And now, you know, we, we have an embarrassment of, of ways to distribute our, our knowledge and ideas and expose different topics that need exposure. So that one, that, I think that, that's the photo I would pick to, to put a cap on that. Yeah, I was thinking about photos that changed the world, actually, and you know, you could cite many of them. Uh, I was involved in protests against the war in Vietnam, and I think about mm -hmm. that child running from napalm, you know, mm -hmm. such a vivid image, or you think about the uh, Viet Cong shooting a Vietnamese person just, you know, frozen in the image of that, holding a gun out and shooting him, or a monk setting himself on fire. All those kinds of things had a lot to do with, I think, changing the nature of the war, along with a number of other historical factors. But yes, the, you think about famous photographs, you also think about things that were the good fortune of the photographer to be there at the time, just the serendipity or the luck of that. But you also yeah. think about things that ha that are happening. You know, the, the 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 shot you're talking about shots off of film, the shots off of NASA. You know, mm -hmm. the creation shots, which came from Hubble originally, for example, out there. Or you yeah. uh, you think about Einstein with his tongue out, or Marilyn Monroe with her dress coming up, or just those kinds of things that seem to happen within the moment. Uh, United plane flying over. At 9-11, those buildings, I mean, they stay right. with us and they just frame our lives. Yeah. Uh, they are bookmarks. They are bookmarks in, in the timeline of, of history and our lives. That's what photographs, in essence, are. Well said. Here's Mark from Central Coast, North Southwest Australia. He says, there's a question about legacy, about the big why in your work life and even possibly in your personal life. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to interpret that question, Mark. Forgive me. Thank you for the question. But what's the big why in your life? <laughs> Legacy. Or uh, yeah, you could take that in a number of different directions. There, I think he wants think to know probably as a photographer. I mean, you know, yeah, why, why do you do this stuff? I think, I think con people that are content creators, right, which is what I consider myself, a content creator, marketer, um, it, even now we're creating content. I think, I think content creators are driven by, by various forces. In my case, it's, I'm just a nerd at heart, right? So I, I love technology. I love art. I love communicating. I love talk, talking to people, having smart conversations, intelligent discourse. That, that is what drives me. And that is why I continue to do what I do and why we have, we have a, a This Week in Photo community with a bunch of people that fit that that mold. Very, very smart, talented people that gather to talk about things, sometimes nonsense, but sometimes great things, you know, and it's, I think that's what it's all about. That drives me. And I get, I, I turn into a, a 13 year old boy when Apple is re releasing new, new hardware, right? The night before I'm, I'm nervous, like, what is this going to be? It's going to be some cool thing that's going to, it's going to change the world. Like the night before the Apple Vision Pro headset got launched and there were rumors that this is what Apple was doing. I was excited about it because of all the reasons we just talked about, you know, it's a strange new world that we're going to be exploring. So what, what my why is a lifelong insatiable curiosity for learning new things and trying new things, which gets expensive, but 
you know, it, it's it's something you can't get rid of. Just trying all this stuff, experimenting, trying to improve the quality of the podcast, trying to, inc to improve the quality of the stories that I'm telling. The the net effect of all of that, the why that surrounds all of that, for me, at least, is family. So if if I can if I can create the perfect sort of cold fusion happiness engine where I'm being fulfilled by doing the things that I love and it happens to generate excess income that we can then survive on and thrive on, then everyone's happy at the end of the day. So that that's my why. As long as I can keep doing what I want to do and keeping people that I care about happy at the same time, you know, what else is there? Well, that's a very thoughtful response. And to, to uh, again, I thank uh, Mark for the question because it's sure. really a good question. Um, when, when I was active, uh, not only doing a radio program every day, but also being a professor and teaching and writing books and so forth, people would say, how do you do it? And I said, that's not the question. The real question is why, you know? Mm -hmm. And you just grappled with it very well uh, yeah. in terms of yeah. motivation. Here's James from San Diego. You were talking about Apple, and he wants to know, what lessons did you learn from your time at Apple that have been invaluable to your professional growth and development? Great question. Uh my time at Apple, like many of my friends that were, were at Apple and are at Apple, has cursed me for the rest of my life with uh, perfectionism <laughs> or the relentless pursuit, sometimes the, you know, the incorrect pursuit, but the pursuit of perfection, you know, sometimes to the degree of short circuiting things that I need to get done because it has to be right. Oh, you know, it's never right. It's always good enough and ship it. My time at Apple taught me the importance of attention to detail. Was that, that the so, Apple culture more, more or less? Uh, I mean, it, did, uh, when did I it was have there. anything to do with Jobs? Was Jobs there when you were there? Uh, he was. Yeah. Yeah. He was he was there when I was there. I met him several times um, through my boss reported to Steve Jobs. So I was I was once removed from his level, of course. But the 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 Steve Jobs quotient was was lore in the company in a lot of ways. Like, oh, don't don't get Steve mad or don't get in the elevator with Steve Jobs because if you say the wrong thing, he'll fire you, which I never experienced anything like that. I stayed in I was in the elevator. Our our schedules were sometimes overlap and I was in the elevator with him many times. Always a nice guy, right? I never, never had any problems with that. The, the, but the, the indelible mark that Apple left on me to this day is attention to detail, perfectionism, or the striving for perfect perfectionism, trying to get it right, trying to make it correct for whoever the target audience is. And that could be a script for a podcast intro. It could be editing video. It could be the set that I'm sitting on right now in my home office. All the things kind of work together. And I feel that influence all the time. And I'm happy for that influence. And I say the Apple influence on me, plus the United States Air Force influence on me kind of pointed my my career in the direction to where it is and made me you know, the, the person I am today, good or bad, you know, some people may say that's, you know, you're, you're too detailed or anal retentive or something, but you know, I embrace that perfectionism is, is something to look to attain. I just have a couple of quick job stories. When I met him, the first time I met him, he said, yeah. you're supposed to be in my dashboard because he was listening to me on the radio, which was you know, <laughs> nice to hear. It was a good line. Yeah. It was a memorable line. Mm -hmm. 
But he also, someone uh, recently who I know did a book about Larry Ellison, and they were close friends. Mm -hmm. And they were asked a question, if you could be anybody in history, who would it be and who do you most admire in history? And uh, Ellison said, this is very revealing, Napoleon. <laughs> but Chobb <laughs> said Gandhi. <laughs> I mean, yeah. and it's like a little Rorschach for each of them in a way and so forth. What about your, your, you were covering combat for the Air Force? What were you doing? Uh, I was a, yeah. yeah. My, in the Air Force, I was a, well, I started as a photographer, and which is, you know, sort of entry level to the career field in, in, in the United States Air Force branch of the, the armed forces. So I went in as a just a regular base level photographer. And the base level photographer's job is to support the the military installation or the base that you're assigned to military bases are very much like self-contained small cities with all of the things that and problems that a small city would have whether it's law enforcement related uh hospital related for forensic photography type tasks portraiture aircraft air-to-air -air, all that stuff so we did my my group did all of that those things at the base level then you move up to the photojournalist level where presumably now you can deploy and go to different areas and take photos and send them back to base level photographers to process and print them and hand them to the requesters. So that was the that was the overall flow of what I did. I tell you, that was the the I personally I know I'm going to make some people angry, but personally, I think the Air Force is the best branch of the military to work for, especially as a photographer. So, yeah, it was it was a great time. But you were described as and commended as a combat photojournalist. What, where was mm -hmm. combat? Where were you? Yeah, I never saw combat. I never went into combat. My title was combat photojournalist because I was ready, combat ready and air qualified, meaning I wore a jumpsuit with wings and my name on it, you know, all of the things. But I never rotated into the Gulf War. I was in during the Gulf War. So I never rotated into the Gulf War. I was stationed at a base in Tokyo called Yokota Air Base. And what I, you know, part of the team's mission was to support whoever got deployed to the field. There'd be a home team and then the away team. And, you know, one would support the other. I was on the home team support side of the equation. Let me go to some more questions. A lot of questions for sure. you. This is from David in Seattle who wants to know, do you concentrate on taking photos or making a photo after it was taken? Oh, really good. Yeah. The, for me personally, the, I look at, I look at photography today, maybe not in the day that we was, you know, back in the combat photojournalism days, but I look at photography today at least for the, the non photojournalistic genres as, capturing content that will later be synthesized into what you saw in your mind's eye. Not, and, and this is a personal choice. So some photographers, they subscribe to the personal dogma of, I got to get it right in camera. It's got to be perfect. And I'm never going to alter the image because that would be disingenuous, which is a perfectly acceptable and fine way to look at it. I look at it more f through the lens of I'm capturing raw materials that I will then later massage into what I want my viewers to see. Again, if it's not photojournalism, then all bets are off. In fact, I on the podcast, I used to say a lot that 
pixels were born to be punished, right? So <laughs> all the pixels you, you capture, they are waiting to be punished and massaged into something that, the, that you think is acceptable to show to other humans. So yeah, I, I, think, I think to answer the, the, the listeners' questions, I, I think that for me, capture is only half of the equation. The other half is the performance, like writing the music and then performing the music. I like the line about pixels. In fact, I was kind of rooting around th looking for some quotes that I thought would be of interest and uh, not to you as well as to those who are listening to us or will be listening to us in the future. came across a Diane Arbus tweet, and I wondered how you might respond to this as someone with all of your experience. She said, a picture sure. is a secret. The more it tells you, the less you know. Oh, wow. That's deep. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was pretty deep, too. That is that is very deep. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack. I like that. Um, yeah, um, not a whole lot of response to that. The more it tells you, the less you know. Yeah, the, the photographs, depending on how you you interpret a photograph, right, is it's kind of like it's kind of like modern art in a lot of ways. The beauty's in the, the eye of the beholder. You know, someone can see a a white canvas with one red dot on it and see the meaning of life in that that piece of art and another person sees a ketchup stain right so it's it's subjective and it literally in the bot in the eye of the beholder what they're going to get out of that photograph which i think in part is why photograph or photography is so beautiful in a lot of ways because when you look at a photograph that is intended to be art and it's artistic photo versus a snapshot of your parking spot at the airport so you don't forget it if it's a real of uh, uh, something that the artist put their their heart into and they're trying to communicate through this two-dimensional medium to an unknown person that will be viewing it at some point in the future that is that is where the magic happens because when they get it that is a little bit of electricity that flows through there when the the, the artist or the photographer said i really want people to think a b and c when they look at this photograph and if someone yeah, but looks you might at it see d see e that, and f right you might see they d might e see f. d e and f absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah so yeah, it's in fact i could never understand those red spots they weren't ketchup to my mind but like a rauschenberg or something i would look at that and i, would, <laughs> I asked a lot of art critics through the years you know please explain that to me and the explanations usually had to do with text with the way things were juxtaposed or, you know, the, but a it comes down to what you're suggesting. What does the eye see? And photographers mm -hmm. see things differently. I mean, especially the really talented artistic photographers, I'm convinced they have different kind of way of envisioning and seeing things. Yeah, um, they do. Uh, this is Reed from up at Santa Rosa it says, have you ever taken a wonderful photo when you thought you were photographing something other than your intended subject? Oh, wow. Uh, yes. Um, I think the one, the one instance that comes to mind is when I was doing a photograph of uh, a portrait, actually, of two little girls and their mom, right? So we're doing the photograph. It was all three of them together. We're doing the lighting and sort of figuring it all out. And then the mom had to step away and take a call. So I was like, okay, let's continue shooting. Let's do some shots. You guys play around, blah, 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 blah. And I ended up with some of the best shots of those two kids that I think that had that they had taken to date because it was these two little kids that were interacting with each other waiting on mom to finish her call and some of the candid moments that came out of that because it was first of all first of all it was candid right because we're in this kind of waiting period and I'm just taking pictures of them while we're waiting for mom and it was lit 
properly, right? So we're using studio lighting. I think I had, I had some sort of fancy lighting I was experimenting with at the time. But all that sort of came together and you bring that into the computer and it was like, wow, okay, how do I repeat that? <laughs> you know, lightning struck, uh, can I do that again? So yeah, and those those are kind of the exciting things about this art form is there is a lot of that serendipity that that pops up from time to time. No matter how much you know and how proficient you are at doing this stuff, we're always surprised. Yeah, I was, uh, in fact, just a quick story. Uh, I've been working on a book on interviewing and it has a similar kind of dynamic or can, I mean, especially if it's lively and have the good fortune of having smart and uh, thoughtful guests like I have this morning with you. But I was interviewing an actor by the name of Billy D. Williams. You've been talking about Star Wars, and he Lando. certainly that's right. Uh, he was here. In, he was in San Francisco for something called Black Expo, and mm -hmm. he was clearly very reticent. It was like pulling teeth. I couldn't get him to talk. And I said, "I have to ask you something bothering you, something on your mind." And he said, "Sounded like Camus the Stranger." He said, "My mother." just died recently. He said, but I'm here to support Black Expo. And I thought, I hadn't planned on this. I said, tell me about your mother. And suddenly the interview took a whole different turn. He wanted to talk about it. He was in mourning. He was really grieving. Yeah. He didn't want to be there. But when he, once he's given the opportunity to talk about how wonderful his mother was, everything changed. The whole interview mm -hmm. changed. Anyway, just, uh, we're, not, we're not here to hear my stories. Um, we got Colin who wants to know, how do we reconcile the ability to manipulate photos so that they can convincingly represent things that did not happen with their power to tell a story? Are we destined to forever live in fiction when nothing can be assumed to be fact? More Live more in fiction, he wants to know, than fact? Um, yes. I think <laughs> the answer uh, is, is yes. We are moving more and more towards a reality where reality can be convincingly recreated through a computer or through m manipulation. You know, and the fact is, like I said, Photoshop, Photoshop is about to enjoy another birthday, but it's 33 years old, right? And Photoshop has been on a trajectory. Excuse me, Frederick, that was the age Jesus was when he was crucified. I just wanted to. <laughs> there you go. Sorry. And maybe AI is doing that to Photoshop. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so, that was the thought. That was the thought. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. But, you know, but it's, it's on. The, even back in the day when Photoshop was starting to mature, maybe when it first was released, there wasn't, there was this hubbub of, you know, it's the end of reality as we know it, right? And as we move forward, Photoshop got more and more powerful and other tools showed up to allow us to do more and more creative things. And now we have AI. So I think, you know, part of the side effect of, of the advance of these things and these technologies is, yeah, reality, we're getting closer and closer to the, 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 a world where everything you look at that's not right in front of you, and even some cases, things that are right in front of you, has to be questioned and verified on, and you could look at that from a negative standpoint, right? So, oh, I can't trust anything, and you know, and there is negative, there's some, some credible negative aspects to that, like with politics, you know, what if someone simulates this candidate and makes them say things that they didn't say, and a certain group of the population believes it, thus changing the outcome of the election. Sure, that could happen, and we have to take that into account as we move forward. But on the other side, we're also building these photorealistic uh, uh, images 
that that we could never do before, meaning we could imagine things and bring them to a two dimensional reality. And in some cases, a three dimensional reality, like with the a company called Unreal um, that created Unreal Engine, which is able to create these real time, full on worlds that you could then enter into and interact with. And they're getting to a level now that it's almost indistinguishable from reality. And we're only in 2023. So imagine 2033 where things will be. So it's, it's, yeah, it's crazy. So yeah, reality, reality as we know it is, you know, it, it could be taking a hit, but you know, we'll see how it plays out. Well, there are maybe alternate realities that we will find out about that we haven't discovered or haven't even. And who's to say of. we're not we're not in one of those? I mean, you know, Elon Musk says we're in a simulation anyway, right? So that's right. This could be a hyper realistic simulation that we're living in, and this may be where things ultimately go. You Bertrand know, Russell we, said this could all be a dream, right? And our could dreams be. could be reality. I mean, there's no way to verify. That. Exactly. I don't know what exactly. kind of em empirical data you could. Uh, produced to uh, verify one way or the other. Here's Zero. Uh, <laughs> that's about right. Here's James <laughs> in San Diego says, could you comment on, we're getting into some tech stuff, which I know you love, and it gives me yeah. an opportunity to explore some things with you too. But he wants to know if you could comment on the Apple's new Vision Pro technology. Are we entering a new era in the photography industry with that? Yes, I, I think so. I think one of, the, one of the things that a lot of people missed in that Apple keynote was the fact that the Apple Vision Pro headset can also take 3D photographs that, or videos that can then be viewed from within the headset. I don't think professional photographers are gonna be running around with a Vision Pro headset on creating content, but I do see that a $3 trillion company like Apple can, can extrapolate where things are going and almost build their own reality. So they can release this Apple Vision Pro headset, right? And put some rudimentary ability within the headset to take images, sign deals with Disney and other studios to create content for these, and then build tools for professionals and organizations to create those worlds and create content that then can be shown within these headsets, which I'm gonna imagine cheaper versions of which will be somewhat ubiquitous in the future. So I think from a photography standpoint, that is, that's a huge deal that, that you can't ignore. In fact, I was watching videos from Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference just the other day, kind of get my brain around how to build these worlds. And I think that's that's a direction photographers and content creators are going to have to do because we're going to have to start building content for areas that people where they're they're congregating right so and inside of this v, the vr headset is where things are going so as a photographer yeah absolutely yeah you have to look at those those the apple vision pro headset and whatever meta might come out with next as a medium that you're going to have to learn how to create content for well, I listened to a number of your podcasts, and uh, one of them you were talking about, uh, I think it was with Troy Miller, about Nikon 28. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. that's exciting a lot of people. Uh, where do you see that going at this point? Well, Nikon, uh, so Nikon, their, their latest camera or their, their flagship camera is the Z9. Uh, they recently released, which is a, and the Z9, I don't want to get too geeky for the audience, but the, the Z9 is 
is a camera that represents for a lot of Nikon shooters and a lot of photographers, the holy grail of where these cameras should have been a while back in terms of using technology to improve things that we as humans are not great at, i.e. focusing. So one of the main tent poles of that camera is it is borderline I don't know, Arthur C. Clarke level focusing, right? It's right on the line of science fiction, how well it focuses and predicts where subjects are gonna be. The Z8 came out, the, the, and one of the problems with the Z9 was price. It was priced out of the range of a lot of people, so you could dream about having those capabilities, but your wallet would not support that dream. They, the Nikon recently released the Z8, which has many of the features of that Z9 camera, but in a smaller body with a smaller impact to your bank account, making it, you know, in the, in the reach of many more people. So that's what we were talking about on that show. Like, why why is the Z8 important, and why was the Z9 important? Together, for a lot of pros, it's the one-two punch, where. Their primary camera is the Z9, and that's what they're gonna use for the majority of their work. And then they'll have the Z8 as a backup camera or a travel camera, or whenever they need a lighter weight body, they'll take that along. So yeah, lots, lots of innovation in that space. Uh, you know what's going through my mind? A line of Paul Simons. I got a Nikon camera, I wanna take a photograph of you. That was not exactly a great rhyme, but that was in one of his older songs. Um, can you also, you were talking in, in high dynamic range, and one mm -hmm. of your podcasts, I'd like to have you kind of reflect on that for the moment and where you see that going. Sure, yeah. You need so, a tripod, first of all. I, I got that message. Or you should have uh, It depends. It depends. So high dynamic, the, just to define what high dynamic range or HDR photography is, it is basically the, what it, what it started as was an attempt to allow cameras to capture the real world as we see it with our eyes, where if you look at, and I'm in a room now with windows to my right here. If I look at that window, I can see what's outside instantly, even though it's California and it's midday, it's bright out there, right? I can look out there and I see it just like it's supposed, like, you know, it's not, it's not overexposed or incorrect. I can see it the way that it's, it's, it's supposed to be seen, right? What high dynamic range does is simulates, or originally what it was, what it was concepted to do was simulate and be able to show that range of what our eyes can see. And our eyes literally can't see, like our, the, the cameras that are in our faces, when we look at things that are contrasty, i.e. A, a contrast between light and dark, when we look at those, our eyes and our brains are working together to make that image look correct and, and help us perceive it. Cameras don't have the benefit of that brain to make on the fly corrections when I look over, you know, to the to the right at that that window versus when I look to the left down the hallway that's dark, I can see detail in both. HDR lets us pull all that range in. And what photographers are doing or have st started doing several years ago was using that technique to do all sorts of creative things as well. Because it turns out you can now boost colors and you can do all sort of fantastical looking things with the image when you have that much data available to you when you're sitting in front of the computer. So HDR, HDR or high dynamic range is just another tool that photographers have in their tool belt to either express themselves 
creatively or to better tell a story, or in the case of real estate photography, which is where it's widely used, to be able to take a photo of the interior of a home mm -hmm. and have it be exposed properly, but then the outside windows aren't blown out. You can actually see detail outside, just like if you were standing in that room yourself. So that, that's the whole point of HDR. Anything else in terms of tech or gear that you're particularly excited about or people ought to know about, maybe they don't know about yet? Yeah, there's so much. Where do we start, right? <laughs> so, uh -huh. the yeah, the the gear, I guess more I guess the the question is right now, right? Cuz there's all there's going to be something different tomorrow. Uh I think the gear on the gear side, my maybe this comes from my time at Apple. I am different from a lot of my contemporaries in that I I'm not the guy that wants a ton of gear around me and I'm buying things just for the sake of buying them, even though I may lust after them and look at them and, you know, and learn about them. I don't I don't surround myself with a lot of technology. My philosophy is almost the reverse. How much can I do with how little? So I get excited when things downsize, like when Apple puts M2 and M1 processors in Macs, which then allow me to not have, you know, need to have a huge desktop machine in my home office, which allows me to take this portable computer with me when I'm traveling and doing speaking gigs on the road. I can still have all this power and not have to make any sacrifices. So the things that get me excited now are just that, just the downsizing of technology and being able to do more as a solo preneur content creator than I could do, you know, a couple of years ago or something that required a team of people in a control room flicking switches and looking at displays. Now I can not replicate that, but I can do my own little smaller version of that and put out a, a really high acceptable quality of that. So those things get me excited. And there's a number of cameras that out that are out that are that get me excited about that and tools that you plug into your home studio setup that allow you to do some really cool and interesting things that really, really excite me. One tool that I'll, I'll, I'll end this with is that uh, I feel like maybe changed, it changed a lot of how I approach content creation, especially podcasting. And that was a little piece of software called Ecamm or Ecamm Live which is, a, it's a Mac app that you run on your, your computer and it basically allows you to bring in a bunch of video sources and click buttons to change those video sources to different things. And then take that feed, your show, as it, as it, as it were, and feed that out as a stream to YouTube or Twitch or Facebook, et cetera. And having that power to be able to send that and create production level, quote production level content out from a desktop machine without a bunch of additional hardware and wires and cables and all the things plugged in, that's where I live. <laughs> that, that is the, that's the magic of getting this stuff done and doing more with less. It's almost a full-time job just to keep up with things the way they're changing. I mean, they're changing Every by the hour, by the mm -hmm. minute maybe even. Here's Joe who wants to know, with the new Apple Vision supporting stereo imagery, do you think future iPhones will shoot stills and videos in stereo? Yeah, I do. I do. Again, I have no inside knowledge about that. So I'll preface it with that. But if if I were a betting man, I would look at just the state of the union right now and what Apple is about to release and what's out there now, i.e. an ocean of 
devices that can capture content that everyone for the most part knows how to use. So of course I would lean into that network of devices as the de facto content creation device for these new headsets in that world. But I also think that would be the, that would be the default. So sure, I can create content and view it in my Apple Vision Pro headset, but professional photographers and organizations will hopefully have a pro level set of tools that they will be able to use and create content. Apple, Apple is no stranger to creating cameras. Apple created the, what was it? The quick take. You remember the quick take back in the day? So they, they could dust off that IP and get back into the camera space, you know, like really quick. I think companies like Nikon, you mentioned Nikon, Nikon, Canon, Fuji, Sony, et cetera, should be paying attention to what Apple is doing with these headsets and the fact that Apple, a trillion dollar company that is known for disrupting existing sort of dug in industries, that looks to be kind of moving into the sites where what if a company like Apple said, or Apple said, you know what? We want to own photography. We want to revolutionize photography. And they threw a, you know, a couple hundred million dollars or a billion, couple billion dollars at the, at the problem and maybe purchased a Nikon and their lens works. And, and I'm, I, I, again, I get no inside knowledge here. I'm just guessing. This is a nerd sort of guessing and hoping. But if Apple decided to, to acquire the ability to create professional capture gear and then redefine the space where that where that imagery and that content is going i.e the vision pro i think in a in a decade's time five years time these the modality that we're in now sitting in front of the keyboard mouse display camera lighting and all that will be completely turned on its head and there'll be new ways for people to or not replacing this, but additional ways for people to consume content that are arguably better than what we have today. Well, I say this without too much seriousness, but if they're going to sort of invest millions in that kind of operation, maybe they'll go meta too to compete with Zuckerberg, right? I mean, Why not? Plausible. Why uh, not? They're already a, competing, right? Apple already, yeah. they're, they're kind of in a low-key uh, Cold War right now. So <laughs> if, if that explodes into a full-on, you know, we are, we are uh, going to war against each other, you know, between Apple and Meta, then yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think it's a good thing, you know, and war is certainly not a great analogy to use for that. But I think in terms of the consumer being the beneficiary of these giant, you know, Godzilla versus King, Tong, King Kong battles going on between these titans, I think we become the beneficiaries because the technology gets pushed forward, the whole idea of capitalism and, you know, a race to create things that consumer consumers want and will consume and be in a, a platform slash device that will become mainstream. So I think, I think we're heading in that direction. And if you look at the tea leaves, the pieces are neatly lining up to point to point there. So if I, I was think betting, maybe there'll be I would a, bet there. There'll be a fight between uh, the two titans and like we're going to see between Musk and Zuckerberg. I mean, a little oh, you mean fight. The, the physical fight? Oh, <laughs> I'm just I joking. I, I, I don't I know what to make don't. of that. <laughs> I, I think it's looking I, like I saw they that. will. I've, I've been following that. I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I hope they don't. There's so there's 
it's entertainment value, you know, to it and shock value to it. And look at these, these billionaires that are wrestling, but I think, you know, so much other stuff to do and so many other things going on good and bad in the world that that kind of thing just feels, feels like a waste of time and a, a waste of effort. I'd rather have them compete on things that will benefit me, the consumer, where, hey, let's see who's the first to build this thing. Or who's the, let's see who's the first person to build an, uh, a, a, an outpost on the moon or something, something no, like that. I'm with that. you, but they want to fight for charity. <laughs> That's what they're claiming at this point. You know, they don't need the bucks, obviously, but we'll have to wait and see how that all turns out. It's just they're made it's of what money. some people just call give toxic, the money to charity. <laughs> toxic masculinity. Yeah, no, that's that's a good idea. Just give the money to charity. Just give you don't the money have to, to fight charity. for it. No. Here's, but it would be one of the biggest pay-per-views of all time, I think, uh, alas. And I'll question. watch it. So. <laughs> You'll pay for it. Here's Lynn who wants to know, what was your first camera? This is kind of a fun question. Oh wow! My first, my first camera. Well, let's say, let's say my my very first camera was a Polaroid SX70. You remember uh, those? Yeah, I had a Pol yeah. My dad gave me a Polaroid SX70 and a bunch of Polaroid film. So that was my first camera, and that was before I knew that I, you know, that this this space was some place I wanted to live in. Uh, Polaroids weren't first, cheap either. Your dad gave you a pretty they nice were. gift. Yeah. I mean, they weren't. Yeah, and it was a nice one. And my um, my first professional camera was one that was issued to me when I was in the Air Force, and that was a Nikon F3. Nikon F3. I missed that camera. It was like with a big lens on it. It felt like Thor's hammer. It was <laughs> it was substantial. Let's say <laughs> I like Thor's hammer. Uh, I think I had a Kodak, but then they had those little brownie cameras too. You know, yeah. those were those uh -huh. were affordable. Now here's Tom, uh, Tommy from St. Paul who says, what is your focus or direction to capture the moment of capture at the moment is the way he phrases it. Oh, so at this moment right now, um, yeah, yeah, my, I think the thing that excites me, that gets me excited most right now, for example, if you were to look at my YouTube watch history, you'd see artificial intelligence, you know, imaging a lot of photography in there. Um, if you had looked at it last year or, you know, and yeah, I guess it was last year. If you had looked at it last year, there would have been a lot of searching on trying to understand crypto and NFT in that space. And if you had looked at it a year before that, it would have been a lot of trying to understand the metaverse and what's happening there and how can photographers leverage this metaverse thing that, that Zuckerberg is building. So it changes, you know, and this, like I said, right now it's AI next year, it'll likely be VR and, a and AR with Apple in the headset when that thing is released year after that, who knows? And that's the fun of this stuff because it's always changing, but there's always that content line or that constant line of, of storytelling and content creation in there. So it's, it just continues to be fun. That's the constant line, but you have to change too. I mean, yes. Essentially, there's a lot of adaptation and accommodation and all the rest of it going on in you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the lifelong learner piece of it. And it's not work. For me, a lot of people say, oh, I have to, 
I have to learn how to use Final Cut Pro because I have to edit this video. I have to learn how to use Adobe After Effects because I have to do this thing. And it it's drudgery for me. I don't know if it's a it's a dysfunction in my own mind, but that that kind of stuff is fun for me. I get excited about learning a new skill that's going to allow me to do different things. And because we have services like YouTube, et cetera, that make learning easier than it was when when we were kids, right? There was back in the day, it was, Ma, can you take me to the library? You know, <laughs> and you go to the library and hang out there. And I would hang out in the how to book section all the time and learn how to do new things. And now I can do that from my iPad sitting on the couch. You know, I have a, a wild hair about a certain topic. I can learn about it directly from my iPad. And that's getting even easier with the chat GPT and services like that. Well, ChatGPT and all of AI will make things, uh, we won't have to bother with a lot of stuff that we bother with now. It's going to make things a lot easier. I mean, just on the yeah. positive, brighter side, you're not going to have uh, some of the onuses that you have now. Just, yeah. they'll be gone, right? Yeah, it, it takes a lot of the friction away. And like I said, it, it drops barriers. For example, one of the ways that I use ChatGPT is managing This Week in Photo YouTube channel. And to create the or or to get a list of say five to seven suggested titles for a video before chat gpt i would sit down and can kind of think about it maybe do some research and look at what other people that have released similar videos how have they named their you know thing that's similar to my content i would do all those things and then i would research keywords what keywords to put in there and what what clever description can I write for this thing? All those things I would sit down and do, which would take a significant amount of time, especially if you have a sort of a block at the moment. Chat GPT, I can go in and say, okay, I just did a video with this person or about this topic. We discussed A, B, and C. Give me five SEO-friendly or even clickbaity titles for this video and it will generate them. And then I could say, okay, now create a, a short description of that video and it'll write that out. And then the last, last thing I would do is like, okay, now generate 20 keywords for YouTube that I can use for this video. And by the way, create that list in a comma separated format so that I could just copy and paste them in the YouTube. Done. I could do all that in 10 minutes and get it done versus hours and probably in a lot of ways better than what I could have done on my own. So yeah, ChatGPT allows me to do that stuff, which allows me to get out of you know that mode of doing that kind of drudgery, which I consider that piece of content creation drudgery and get back to the kind of stuff that I like doing or get back to my family or get outside or do whatever. So it is freeing in that way. Well, it's been delightful spending time with you. Your excitement, your knowledge, your optimism, and your passion have all come across. And thank you so much for being a part of our podcast. My pleasure. Thanks again for having me. It's been a blast. And many thanks to all of you who are with us for this Great Matter with Michael Krasny episode, or we'll be hearing it in the future. A reminder, if you haven't done so, join our unique and growing community, a weekly podcast, simply by going to graymatter.show. That's gray with an E. Special thanks to the Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, Kevin, and Jeff, who is aboard now. And our thanks again to today's special guest, Frederick Van Johnson. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.